Hey, everybody out there. This is your good friend and mine, Jason. Happy, merry holidays and Christmas and Hanukkah and really, I guess, just whatever the fuck you decide you feel like uh, celebrating. It's uh, right now, it's December 24th and it is Christmas Eve. And I figured that I could maybe uh, bring you guys something a little special just from me. Just a little uh, thank you for, you know, all you've done for me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You guys are dicks. Um, so I wanted to bring you a special story. It's a story I've known about for a while that, that's been... It, it haunts me. It haunts me bad. So this is the only warning you're going to get. There, There's just way too much really terrible shit in this episode um, that if you think you might not be prepared for it at all, just turn it off. Do not listen. There are triggers galore. There's just... This is a serious story. Um, but I plan on treating it with the reverence it deserves. So, at least there's that. So, here goes nothing. was exactly a month before Christmas in 1988 in the Japanese city of Masada, where a young Miss Junko Furuta was biking herself home at around 8.30pm, the end of a tiring workday. At the same time, two young men, Hiroshi Miyano and Nobuharu Minato, were wandering around the very same town, very much with intent. The intentions held by these two tumultuous teens were as simple as the primitive animal mind could muster. They both agreed that they very much liked money. Almost to the degree, they agreed on their lust of women. Tonight's design was for both to be taken without empathy or hesitation. Then the beautiful 17-year-old Junko comes into view. With orders to make it look good, dictated by Hiroshi, Nobuharu runs up to the for now blissfully unaware Junko and forcefully removes her from that very bliss with the sole of his shoe, with the sole purpose of inciting fear and weakness so that her fight retreats deep within her. The setup for the setup had been set. Nobuharu knows the job well done by the self-gratifying endorphin rush he feels. The Skinner box requirement fulfilled, Nobuharu retreats back into the still young night. Hiroshi, an old hat at this sort of business, then makes the worried run over to the visibly shaken Junko. He offers her a kind smile and a helping hand for the return to her feet, while spouting some, no doubt, poorly rehearsed nonsense of ruffians being about. He drops the hint that she might possibly be in need of not only a sympathetic ear, but the added benefit that his company would bring her safety for the remainder of her night's wanderlust. What exactly happened from point A to B on the trail from there to here is really neither here nor there. What's known about what happens next is that Hiroshi's silver tongue performed as intended and had led Junko by the ears to a nearby warehouse where his true self starts to show through the crumbling facade of his tail. 
Immediately, the retractable fangs he's been aching to set free spring forth in a flash of malice and extinctual carnality. Alongside the incredulous claims of belonging to the Yakuza comes a very real threat of death if she puts up a fight or lets out a peep. After a show of machismo-laden bravado, he then proceeds to steal away from her the only possession a monster like himself cares to collect. The same yet unique possession he's stolen away from many other young ladies, sometimes alone, other times accompanied by others of equal unclean corruption. The forcible violation that follows is neither tender nor caring. The vile rape of an innocent never is. What transpires is the most selfish act that can be performed by one forced onto another. Hiroshi then carried the same despicable act to the new venue of a nearby hotel. It was from this second, undoubtedly seedy location that Act 2 was readied and put into action. It was from this very hotel that Hiroshi contacted his cohorts, phoning Joe Ogura, Yasushi Watanabe, and the now familiar Nobuharu Minato. It's now that Hiroshi brags about his forced conquest to the other boys, which gives Ogura a favor to request. His request is as dastardly as it is simple. He would like to inquire about the availability for long-term possession of the human being they found themselves in charge of that night. Joe wanted his turn as excrement become boy that night and thought the others deserved that right as well. After all, they had done this kind of thing before. They had done this same thing without a single consequence so many times before. He saw no reason for this instance to be any different. Now nearing 3 a.m. on the night of the 25th, Hiroshi forces Junko to a nearby park where the three other young boys are in wait. Having been through her belongings, they were able to tell her exactly where she and her parents lived. With this very information, they were able to make the threat of Yakuza violence all the more real if she attempted escape. She was then muscled by the now-complete quartet of despised worthlessness to a home in the Ayase district of Adachi, where she was gang-raped. She now found herself in the very home of Nobuharu Minato, which was regularly used as a den of thieves and rapists by this very same group of thieves and rapists. The house was owned and resided in by Nobuharu's parents. When they were around, Junko was forced to posture as a girlfriend to one of her captured rapists. All pretext was quickly abandoned when it was clear that the Minatos wouldn't do a fucking thing about it. Their reasoning for any and all lack of intervention was the fear of reprisal from their Yakuza-affiliated son who had somehow, surprisingly, shown increased violence toward them. Nobuharu's brother was also aware of the truth behind the terrified girl, yet did nothing. What follows is a 40-day period that shows the absolute worst that humanity has to offer. The disgusting, fucking, fuck, fucked list that I'll now read includes the horrors that Junko was forced to experience as her last days. The list will be kept simple not only for clarity, but also my sanity's sake. They raped her over 400 times. They also invited and encouraged their friends to humiliate and gang rape her. They starved her. They beat her several times with golf clubs, bamboo sticks, and iron rods. They used her body as a punching bag by hanging her from the ceiling. They dropped barbells onto her stomach several times, forced her to eat live cockroaches and drink her own urine. They forced her to masturbate in front of them. They inserted foreign objects such as iron bars, scissors, and skewers into her vagina and anus, rendering her unable to defecate and urinate properly. They shoved a still-lit light bulb into her vagina. They set fireworks into her anus, vagina, mouth, and ears, deafening her. They burnt her vagina and clitoris with cigarettes and lighters. 
They burnt her eyelids with hot wax and lighters. They tore off her left nipple with pliers. They pierced her breasts with sewing needles. Now, near or around a hundred people were aware of the teens holding Junko captive. But when the Japanese do something, you better fucking bet that they're going to do it the right way. It's just that in this case, not giving a fuck just happens to be something to do. So this large number of what can only be described as chicken shit did one of two things. One, they did absolutely nothing. Or two, they themselves joined in with the disgraceful acts of rape and torture. Many being friends of the young men responsible for Junko's current state of predicament, who were also somehow affiliated as lowest rank Yakuza. On November 22nd, Junko's parents, existing near or at wit's end, contact the police. They explain the disappearance of their young daughter in expectant aspiration for the quick resolution and return of their cherished offspring. But as it stands, the crafty youth had a scheme for an occasion exactly like or resembling this one specifically. Junko was made to contact her parents, and coerced into the explanation that her sudden, elusive dematerialization was nothing more than a need to run from the stressors of home and work. That she just needed time and the company of whatever random name of a confidant she decided in the heat of the moment sounded convincing enough. She was then directed to plead that her mother put a stop to the investigation, what with everything having been explained to be safe and secure, as it were. There were two young friends outside of the inner circle that would, in the end, ultimately be charged with rape, having had their semen discovered in this singular place where such a charge can be sure to originate. The names of these also very young boys were Tetsuo Nakamura and Koichi Ihara. It's alleged that Koichi was bullied into his part in the participation in the perpetration. After escaping himself from the Minato home, he told of what he had seen to his brother, and in what should have been the most uplifting game of telephone ever, Koichi tells his brother. Brother of Koichi tells their parents. Parents of Koichi and Koichi's brother tell the police. But here's where the exuberant, optimistic voice stops. Two officers were then dispatched with the sole responsibility of the rescue of Junko. From the hands of a maniacal murder of misfit teens. To be returned to the safety of her parents' waiting arms. The officers were directed directly toward the home of the Minados, told to exercise due diligence and to remember their training. For one day, it would mean the difference between life and death. On arrival to what I can only be bothered to imagine is a two-story outhouse with a view, a.k.a. what I hope we all imagine the Minado homestead to be in appearance, the officers take the first step toward the safe return of Junko. They knock on the door. Then the door is answered. Then, the intrepid officers inquire about a young lady that they hear tell has been known to be kept prisoner there. Then, whatever fucking piece of garbage had answered the door tells the two super cops that they must be mistaken. There's no prisoner here by that name. The officer's next inquiry is about the feelings said fuckhole would experience if they were to, I don't know, maybe have a look around. Said fuckhole says with his level 100 brass balls equipped that the feeling would best be described as a, hmm, whatever kind of thing. The officers, who will now only be known as Fucktard A and Fucktard B, think quickly, on their toes, with their heads on a swivel. The Fucktards put the fuckhole's mind at ease now by just relinquishing winner of Battle of Wits. So, the Fucktards defeated, 
say to themselves and fuckhole positioned opposite that all seems just super. And they promptly do their best 180 turntail and walk away, knowing that they had done a job well done. If these cops would have made even a quick search of the home, Junko would have only suffered 16 days of her imprisonment, possibly able to recover. Subsequently, the fucktards were relieved of their positions as protectors of the peace. It was the beginning of December now, and Junko had somehow found enough alone time with access to a phone to reach over to it, lift up the receiver, put receiver to ear, then dial whatever the number for the Japanese 911 is, wait for an answer, begin explaining the horrible predicament she was in, when Hiroshi appeared, and the breaks on her attempt were just broke so fucking hard. The call cut short, so the police phoned back. Now a male Hiroshi answers and tells them it was all a simple misunderstanding. The police having naught but understanding for the situation then end the call. No harm, no foul. The boys feeling that disciplinary action needed to be taken, then doused Junko's legs and feet in lighter fluid and set them ablaze. As further measure, they forcefully insert a large bottle into her anus, which began an episode of severe bleeding. Junko then falls into convulsions. During the trial, the boys state that they believed her faking. These perceived just joking seizures prompt them to ignite her once again. Junko survives these horrors, only to live through many, many more. She continues to be subjected to countless rapes and tortures. She's said to have pled with her captors on many occasions to just kill her and get it over with. But her life no longer being her own to own, they refused. Instead of relinquishing the one thing that would have made her happy, they made her sleeping accommodations out on the balcony. They made her sleep outside on the balcony in the dead of fucking winter. For good measure, they would also sometimes lock her in the freezer. As one of the boys recounts at trial, her arms and legs were so badly damaged she would take just over an hour to drag herself down to the ground floor to relieve herself. Although, due exclusively to the severe trauma her genitals received, she was at a point where a loss of bladder and bowel control was inevitable. And that's exactly what she lost. Or, I should absolutely say... That's exactly what was stolen away from her. For her trouble of being incontinent on what was no doubt the fanciest shag carpet that Japanese food stamps can buy, she was beaten. To the point where Junko became unable to ingest or imbibe food or drink respectively. And when she attempted to take part in a very simple, very accepted activity of life, she would vomit after each exertion of an undertaking. She was then predictably severely beaten for this transgression. The beautiful young Junko's appearance was drastically altered by the enmity and indignity of the absolute onslaught of violence to which she was subjected. Her youthful face had become inflamed and distended, so much so as to make her unrecognizable. Her limbs and body in general had become crippled and broken to the level that even the sadistic fucking assholes that had caused the state were now finding themselves at a loss of sexual desire for their prisoner. I mean, this is why we can't have nice things. As a direct result, the subhuman scoundrels then kidnap and gang-rape a 19-year-old woman who is also committing the heinous crime of making her way home from work. On now the 40th day of the saga of an ordeal I've ended up subjecting us all to, the boys decide to challenge Junko to a game of Mejong, not as a game of chance to win her freedom, 
or even a day, hour, minute, or second reprieve from the viciousness that they were capable. They challenged her to a game of Mejong for one reason and one reason alone. For the fuck of it. Junko hopefully laughing maniacally and spitting blood in the faces of the feces become boys. At least, that's the only way that I choose to imagine this particular game going. Then wins the game. I would love to make some insensitive joke here about how she flipped him off while she took a victory lap around the room, all the while vocally calling into question each and every one of the boys' sexual orientation. But, what actually happened was... that the boys, being at the unevolved sub-rock IQ level in which they reveled in as kings, took this loss harder than me trying to figure the fuck out of common core math. The steps taken next were to mercilessly and savagely and viciously and without a single fiber of fucking humanity take all their frustration out on Junko. Like the combined frustration of every one of the world's micro-penis owners, the hate, fury, and inadequacies pour thick out of every pore. The thrashing that was given was given with fists, feet, and an iron barbell. The inclusion of two small candles placed upon her eyelids were not for some birthday celebration you forgot about that you now need to feel embarrassed about forgetting, but to simply include the intense pain of having hot wax where it's not fucking supposed to be. They brought her to her feet, made her stand on her own accord, only to strike her repeatedly with sticks. It was this exact moment... That it's apparent at what point the best of the best of the survivors among us cease being so. The exact point where, no matter the will and constitution to just see one more sunrise, the body's molecules are broken down so harshly that they can no longer continue being. Being anything, really. Junko then falls over onto a stereo. Now, if you remember 80 stereos, you'll sympathize with this unique pain. She then starts an all-new, very convincing fit of convulsions. Since Junko was bleeding uncontrollably and pus seeped from infected burns, the cockless boys took precautions and care in covering their hands with plastic bags, which they secured with tape at the wrists. Now properly protected, they continued the beating, during which an iron exercise weight was dropped onto her stomach several times. Feeling this savageness lacking, they proceeded to once again douse Junko in lighter fluid, soaking her thighs, arms, stomach, and face setting flame to fluid fume, and kindled the conflagration. Junko made a valiant effort to extinguish the blaze, but quickly became motionless and fell silent. It's thought that she had finally succumbed during the two-hour-long torture, or in the hours shortly thereafter. On January 4th, 1989, less than a full 24-hour period after her final passing, Nobuharu's brother called him to, you know, just to let you know I'm a... Pretty sure that girl you guys were monsters to for over a month is, like, dead. Yeah. Yeah, pretty sure she's dead. The boys being terrified of being arrested for murder, uh, they wrap Junko's body in blankets and then into a travel bag. The next step was to lay her into a 55-gallon drum and top it off with concrete. Around 8 that night, they dispose of the drum containing the most fucking badass 17-year-old to walk the face of this earth into a cement truck in Kodo, Tokyo. On January 23, 1989, Miyano and Ogura were arrested for the gang rape of the 19-year-old woman they kidnapped in December. You remember the one. Then on March 29th, two police officers came to interrogate them because evidence in the form of women's underwear had been found in their homes. 
It's now that we can finally be proud of the police that up to this point have been nothing but an annoyance, never a true threat to the tiny villain's dastardly plans. But during this interrogation, one of the now-for-fucking-real super cops unknowingly tricks Hiroshi into thinking that he knew of Junko's murder. Hiroshi, thinking that the dumbass Ogura had confessed, instantly told police exactly where Junko's body was hidden. The police were somewhat taken aback by this confession. They were actually speaking of a completely separate murder case, the murder of a woman and her seven-year-old son that occurred just nine days prior to Junko's kidnapping. That case remains unsolved. Police uncovered the drum containing Junko's remains the following day and identified her by fingerprinting. April 1st, 1989, Joe Agura was arrested for yet another sexual assault and re-arrested for murder. In the days that followed, Yasushi, Nobuharo, and Nobuharo's brother were also taken into custody. If you were hoping for justice to be anything but blind, now might be a good time to turn the podcast off. And, like, maybe go do something that might make you smile for a bit. Might I suggest a marathon of Fraggle Rock? Otherwise, ready the clenching of your fury fists with me. (sighs) So despite the inhuman height of depravity partaken by the group, the true identities of the boys were sealed away since each was considered a juvenile at the time of the crimes. But then... My new hero, a journalist at Shukan Bushin magazine, discovered and then published their names, stating that the nefarious, heinous crimes were so severe that the boys didn't deserve the right to anonymity. All four boys pled guilty to committing bodily injury, resulting in death rather than murder. In July of 1990, a lower court sentenced Hiroshi Miyano, the ringleader, to 17 years. He then appealed this ruling, but then my new, new hero, Tokyo High Court Judge Ryuji Yanase, tracked an additional three years to the original 17. The 20 years received is the second highest possible sentence after life imprisonment. Hiroshi was 18 at the time of Junko's murder. Hiroshi's mother was reported to send Junko's parents 50 million yen, which is around $425,000, with money made from the sale of their home. Nobuharu Minato originally received a four to six year sentence, but was resentenced to five to nine years by Judge Ryuji. He was 16 at the time of the murder. Nobuharu's parents and brother were not charged at all. Yasushi Watanabe, who was originally sentenced to three to four years in prison, received an upgraded five to seven. He was 17 at the time of the murder. And just because I think this is kind of silly, um, afterwards, he, uh, he married a Romanian woman. For his participation in the crime, Joe Ogura served eight years in a juvenile prison before he was released in August of 99. He was 17 at the time of the murder. After his release, he's said to have boasted about his role in the kidnapping, rape, and torture of Junko. In July of 2004, he was again arrested, but this time for assaulting Takotashi Asano. It's uh, an acquaintance he thought was fucking his girlfriend. Joe tracked Takotashi down, beat him, shoved him into his trunk. He then drove him from Adachi to his mother's bar in Masato, where he allegedly beat Takotashi for four hours. During that time, Joe had repeatedly threatened to kill him, telling him that he'd killed before and he knew how to get away with it. For this, he was sentenced to seven years in prison. 
and has since been released. Joe's mother allegedly vandalized Junko's grave, stating that Junko had ruined her son's fucking life. It's also been reported that uh, Joe has run through his father's saving, which was money originally meant for Junko's family. He did this by buying and consuming just a huge number of luxury goods. The sentences were largely regarded as being far too light for the crimes committed, because of fucking course they were. However, all four individuals were protected by special provisions applied to individuals 18 years old and younger. Had they been just a few years older, Hiroshi would have undoubtedly received capital punishment, while the others were likely to have gotten life imprisonment. During sentencing, the judge commented that exceptionally grave and atrocious violence had been inflicted upon the victim, and that Junko had been murdered so brutally at the young age of 17 that her soul must be wandering in torment. Hearing the details of the brutal rape and torture, a spectator in the gallery fainted. Junko's mother also reportedly had a mental breakdown, which required psychiatric treatment. Junko's funeral was held on April 2nd, 1989. One of her friend's memorial address stated, Jun-chan, welcome back. I have never dreamed that we would see you again in this way. You must have been in so much pain, so much suffering. The happy we all made for you at the school festival looked really good on you. We will never forget you. I've heard that the headmaster has presented you with a graduation certificate, so we graduated together, all of us. Jun-chan, there is no more pain, no more suffering. Please rest in peace. Faruda's employer, at her part-time job, which she worked at prior to her kidnapping and murder, presented her parents the uniform she would need to wear as a full-time employee. The uniform was placed in her coffin. The location where Junko's body was discovered has been developed since and is now a park. Merry Christmas, fuckers. Thanks for listening.